welcome to the AOL podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message. All right, let's hold it up. Maybe we can say it tonight without me stumbling like I did the last time. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I, I can have what it says I can have, and I can do what it says I can do. I am about to be taught from the incorruptible, everlasting seed of the Word of God, and I will never, ever be the same again. Never, ever be the same again, right? All right. Our uh, main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. Now, I want you to remember this, and I want you to write this down if you got a pen. Write it down beside uh, that uh, first quote that we do right there. Uh, the quote that says the main thing, well, write down, write down this, and you can read it again, but I'll read it to you here in just a little bit. But Philippians 2, 10 through 11, it's a scripture we ought to learn, and most of you probably know it by heart, but it, Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's all about Jesus, right? Let's keep it that way. Philippians chapter 2, 10 and 11. 10, 10 through 11. Okay. The recap from last time in Lesson 8, uh, and we're going to cover... Uh, rest of chapter 6 and, and all of chapter 7 tonight, so we do have a lot to cover. But last time, last night, we dealt with the beginning of the, of the opening of the seven-sealed scroll by the one and only one worthy to open it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Four seals were opened, revealing the four horsemen who symbolically initiate the tribulation period. The white horse pointing to the Antichrist and his rise to power and prominence. The red horse representing war on earth. The black horse showing the results of the wars and famine and scarcity, and the pale or green horse indicating much death on the earth with hell or Hades following, the wrath of men against men. Now we will see, uh, continue, now we will continue in chapter 6 with the other uh, seals as we get, begin to see uh, the wrath of God poured out upon men. So let's read from Revelation 6, uh, verses 9 through 17. Starting in verse 9. And then when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Verse 12, and I looked, and then he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of the heavens fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who 
is able to stand. So we'll title this segment here, Hold Back the Winds of Judgment. The winds of judgment are blowing on earth. This is all future and prophetic. Remember that we're seeing what John's seeing in his vision. Are blowing on the earth as we've seen the four horsemen do their horrible work, but nothing happens outside of God's purpose. So what is the purpose of all this mayhem? God's purpose in the tribulation is, it's always been, to save those in the human family who will turn to him. God will finish his discipline of Israel and finalize his judgment on the unbelieving world. Grace and mercy is always his plan, but justice must come for he is righteous in all his ways. He likely would keep it this he likely wouldn't keep this world running if it wasn't for the people turning to him. Even in this period, multitudes will turn to him and he'll welcome them with open arms. A great company is going to be saved as the tribulation begins. These initial judgments are accomplishing God's purposes, but for the many who turn to him, even more will turn against him. The judgments of God are like the, like the sun's effect on wax and clay. Some will be hardened by it, others will melt. As believers, when trouble comes to, to our lives, he will either draw us to God or drive us from him. He wants to draw us closer to him, and this is the, his way of doing it. John 5, 24 tells us, in, in this is uh, Jesus speaking. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. So opening of the fifth seal, prayer of the martyred remnant. We'll go to verse 9 and 11. We'll read these here. And then when it, it says right here, when, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, uh, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said, to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now, for one of the first things you see up there is this, I, I saw under the altar. Now, the altar is in heaven. It's before the throne of God. He's, or he's before the throne of God. He's in heaven. And he, this, he sees this altar. Now, this altar is, uh, this is the same altar that if you, if you remember the study of the tabernacle that we did, the wilderness tabernacle, it's the same altar that's called the, the, uh, the altar of incense or uh, the holy altar that's before the, when, when uh, Moses made his pattern of everything that he saw in heaven. This is the same altar that he's talking about here, except this is the one that's actually in uh, the presence of God, the holy one up there. It's the, it's the altar of incense, the golden altar. And altar, of course, means it's the, it's the heavenly golden altar, but it's, before, it's the one that's before the Holy of Holies. And, of course, the Holy of Holies in heaven is uh, God the Father sitting on the throne, uh, Jesus Christ at his right hand. That's the Holy of Holies. This is the altar. And it says that we, we see the, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. See, an altar is a place of sacrifice. An altar is a place of meeting with God. It's an altar. It's a place of consecration. But when I see this, and you see this um, where it says the souls are under the altar, I think of this when we were talking about the altar, the, the, the golden altar of incense, where the priest, uh, uh, they ministered there twice a day in the, in the old tabernacle uh, scene. And, and one of the things that they did, this altar was very holy, but one of the things they did when they, did the, when they had the Day of Atonement, and, you know, they, they went before the Lord, they... they uh, they had the sacrifice, and, you know, the, the high priest was the one that uh, 
uh, had to take the blood of the animal that was slain, the bull usually, and he took it in. And one of the things he did was he, he put blood on that altar. The altar had four horns. It was like 18 inches by 18 inches, the one in the, in the t- holy tabernacle or, or the tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle. But he put that blood on there as signifying, you know, that it was sanctified, it was, uh, it was consecrated. And so when I see that, and, you know, it says, and also told us in that study, that part of the thing that they did, the symbolic part of, of, the, of the altar was to burn incense on there. And, of course, we talked about that, that incense was like the prayers uh, when it was burned on there because it was used with the coals of fire that come from the brazen altar outside, the, that fire that perpetually burned. This was the fire, and then they sprinkled the incense on there, and those prayer, the, the incense rose, the, the cloud of incense rose up, and this was symbolic of the prayers of the, of the priest and also the people of God rising up to heaven as a sweet and uh, aroma to God. And, you know, that's what we think of our prayers now is when we pray, it's just like the incense rising to heaven. It's the prayers that go before God. So what we see here, we see the altar with the souls of, of uh, those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony, there we see them. And, you know, remember when, when John was describing this in chapter 4, he said, he said it was like a, like a sea, like crystal. In other words, you could see through it. So what John is seeing now, he's seeing all these multitude of souls underneath the altar in heaven. And I believe what he's saying here, that these, these they're saying here, he said, these, these people that are under here, he says, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood? These are prayers of saints that have been, and we'll get into that a little bit more, who they are. But I believe what he's seeing is where he's seeing the, the souls of, of uh, tribulation saints or people that were killed before the tribulation or when, since the start of the tribulation. He's seeing these, these people, and they're praising, praying. And so they're already, they're praising, or they're praying to God. Their prayers are rising up like incense to God. But it's symbolic of, you know, it's, un, it's at that altar. That altar has been, if we go back and we'll, we'll read that, or it, we'll see it here in just a minute in Hebrews, but we'll also see that Jesus went into the heavenly temple himself and took his blood. That's where he presented his blood to the Father, that once-for-all offering so that would never have another sacrifice on there. And I believe that he took that blood and he probably consecrated every piece of furniture in the, the tabernacle in heaven. So that altar, that, that golden altar right there, has the blood of Jesus on it. These saints are below it. They're praying. Their prayers are raising up through that altar as the incense would have been in the in the holy tabernacle so i think that's what we're seeing here is is that and then we'll answer a few more questions as we go but i think that's what we're seeing uh on this uh uh altar here now he says and and he says here that for the souls of those who had been slain for the word of god and for the testimony which they held well you know that's exactly the same reason that john is on the isle of patmos if you'll go back and read in verse uh chapter one of revelation verse nine you can write that down and go back and read it, but he was, he was on there, and it says that he was on the Isle of Patmos for the same thing, the Word of God and for the testimony that he had about Jesus Christ. So that's, that's, I think that's very inter- interesting and very significant too. So go back and read that when you have time. So here we go back to the next paragraph. Back in heaven, John next sees an altar, just like we described, where Jesus Christ has offered his literal blood for the sins of the world. Go back and read I put that scripture in there, Hebrews 9, 23 to 26. You can read that just like we talked about. It's very good scripture. Read all of chapter 9. It, it gives a whole good description. Like Pastor says, we need to do a study on Hebrews one of these days just to see all the things that go along with this. 
but, but gathered at the base of the, or under the altar of the souls of those who have been killed for their faith in God since the beginning of the tribulation. That's what John is seeing here. So those who were in Christ, dead or alive, from Abel to the end of the church age, uh, are raptured and with the Lord. That's so. That's what 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 we're, they're already up there, represented by the John and by the twenty four elders uh, up there. So all the raptured saints. These are not raptured saints. These are saints that have been killed since the beginning of the tribulation. Um, so some scholars have commented that these under the altar are actually in paradise, as seen through the crystal sea, awaiting their resurrection to receive their glorious bodies. They plead for the justice on the basis of God's holy law. They cry out in loud prayers, How long, strong God, holy and true? How long before you step in and avenge our murders? You can see different instances where even things like uh, the blood. Uh, I'll give you a couple of references right there, but you can remember well, I think, uh, the story of when Abel was slain by Cain. And God confronted him, you know, and Cain denied slaying him. And, and uh, he said, he told Cain, he said, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. So, you know, the, the blood cries out. This one, uh, the, the other Numbers 33 talks about in the law as they talk about that, that that's uh, the, uh, the unavenged murders have to be uh, dealt with. And so another place where uh, the blood cries out for avenging. So it's a matter of time. Time will, will take place and these things will happen. Then each martyr, uh, but when, when he says, when, when they're asking that question, how long, strong God, one of the things you can think about right now here, we're at the, probably at the stage at this point here where, we're, where we've opened the fifth seal, fixing to go into the sixth seal, we're probably, probably seeing as we go back and, and see these things, we're probably at the three-and-a-half-year point of the Revelation. So there's three-and-a-half more years. So it's not going to be more than three-and-a-half more years before they uh, are avenged or, they're, or they, um, that God will come and uh, step in and avenge the murders. Then each martyr is given a white robe uh, symbolizing salvation and eternal life. God tells them to be patient, to sit back and wait until the full number of martyrs are filled from among their friends in the faith. There's going to be many, many more. And so he talks about, there's a scripture in there that says until the fullness of the number of saints is uh, is fulfilled, uh, more people will experience martyrdom, martyrdom before the end of the tribulation and before it will be God's time for Jesus Christ to return to the earth and to judge their living adversaries. Many of these people will be killed by the great whore of Babylon uh, and we'll see that in Revelation 17, verses 1 through 7, Mystery Babylon. Like we talked about it before. Uh, I think we talked about it last week. It's a false religious system, and we'll study that in detail later. But i give you a little side note there about Mystery Babylon, just to kind of keep, you can keep this in mind. And as we go forward, and when we see that in the, in the chapters following, uh, you'll see this. But uh, what, what Mystery Babylon actually means, it's the ultimate religious and moral prostitute. In other words, if you're not faithful to, to your faith in Jesus Christ, then what you've done is you have con committed moral prostitution. All false religion founded and or propagated by the devil throughout history. In other words, everything that's gone on like that, that's been founded or propagated. Either man's developed it or, or the devil started it, but he's the one that's pro propagated it throughout history. Paganism, cults, secret societies, witchcraft, idolatry, mythological deities, pantheism, humanism, worship of creation rather than the creator, all apostasy, etc., all come from the father of lies. Basically, all is Satanism if it doesn't point to Jesus. You know, there's only two things. There's either Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, or there's the other way, and that's all Satanism.
I mean, we can call it by every shade and color you want to, all these, all these Eastern religions and everything like that. But basically, if it's not worshiping Jesus, then it's, it's Satanism. And so, as we talk about the fifth seal, we, could, we can look at the, the fifth seal. This is just a side note. can be a summary of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And so, the sixth seal begins to reveal the next phase of wrath, which is the wrath of God. So, we move on. Opening the sixth seal, the day of wrath has come. This is verses six, uh, chapter 6, 12 through 17. <clears throat> and I'll read that again. And you can read it with me right there. It said, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, great men, the rich men, uh, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide from us the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Only those who believe will be able to stand, right? We'll get, uh, I've got some scripture there for you to, to uh, set you up for that. But anyway, the scene, uh, and I, I want that there to, in front of you, that scripture, so you can refer back to it and look at it as we go through some of the details of there. But uh, it says, the scene now shifts back to earth and signals the beginning of the last half uh, of, the, of the great tribulation. The great day of his wrath is before us. The great tribulation opens and closes with upheavals in nature. You see up there, it says earthquake. Sun becomes black as sackcloth. The moon becomes like blood. And the stars of heaven fall to the earth. You know, all those things are uh, uphills, upheavals in nature. The beginning of the tribulation, you can read and compare in Joel. Go back and read Joel 2. Th- this is extra Bible study for you, but you needed to read it. Go back and read those scriptures that are identified there for the, for the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, Joel 2, uh, 30 through 31, and Acts 2, 20. And then at the end of the tribulation, we see what happens at the end with uh, Joel 3, 9 through 17, Isaiah 13, uh, and 34, uh, and 1 through 4, and then Matthew 24, 29. And I encourage you like I always do, but please read as a parallel to all of this we're talking about. Go back and read Matthew 24 from start to finish because it tell, it's showing you things that we're seeing here, and we'll refer to a lot of scriptures out of Matthew 24 uh, that will help us out on that. But it says, a dreadful scene indeed. God will first send a huge planet-sized earthquake that will rock the whole world and cause mountains and islands to rise and fall as, as has never happened before. The sun will grow dark, the moon will redden like blood, and the stars will appear to fall like a meteor shower. So what it's saying, you know, when it says that the, it looks like uh, uh, that the stars of heaven, it's not meaning the actual literal stars that we see, like the ones that are a billion miles away, but, you know, shooting stars, falling stars, meteorites, whatever you want to call them, that's probably what, and even could be asteroids, you know, large asteroids coming and falling. Uh, you know, we've had... Uh, according to scientists, we've had close calls with asteroids uh, getting close to the Earth, which would cause uh, tremendous damage. But anyway, that's probably what they're what he's referring to here is when he sees these, and of course, they looks like stars falling out of heaven. Uh, and it, uh, and then the fact that we're having an increase in earthquakes today is not a fulfillment of this, but gives us a precursor to show us that it could happen, as God's word said it says it will. 
back to Matthew 24, 7. Go back, you can mark that, write that down if you want to go back and look, right? Matthew 24, 7. It says here, I'll read it to you right quick. This is about tribulation times. And Jesus says this, for the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. So, you know, this is, he's talking about this time that we're actually seeing, this prophetic time that he's, we're actually seeing here in Matthew 24. Now, there's, it's kind of like one of those scriptures that has dual, dual, uh, dual fulfillment. You, we see it in time here, but the final fulfillment will be during the, the, during the uh, uh, actual tribulation time. Talking about earthquakes. Have y'all noticed how much earthquakes is in the news lately? I mean, if you really pay any, and I don't watch much news, but I do follow a few things on Instagram and, and uh, things like that that show, you know, you see news reports about earthquakes. Well, you know, here recently back, I think it was in January, or the first part of January in Japan, they had 150 earthquakes in one day. And these were like uh, significant ones, like 7.6 and above, uh, most of them. In Oklahoma City here just recently, I think it was last couple of weeks ago or a week or so ago, they had multiple earthquakes, 5.0 or, or greater. In Columbia, just, just a few days ago, they had multiple earthquakes that happened down there. And you remember, of course, if you watch the news, you remember seeing the scene in Iceland where they had several volcanic eruptions at the same time. And, you know, that was fantastic to see that. You know, there was lava flowing everywhere. There, you know, multiple volcanoes happening at the same time. And then uh, just a day or so ago, I think it was the first part of this week, China had several large earthquakes that were in the 7.6 and above category. So the earthquakes are happening all over the world. And I think it's just what we're seeing is a precursor to say one day there's going to be an earthquake that's going to shake the whole earth, and it's going to get people's attention big time. So evidently the sky will also appear to split and roll back like a scroll in opposite direction like it's coming apart. Have you ever been in one of those thunderstorms where you know you're standing out there watching it, and you you know it's one. Of, it's been a long time since we've had one of those spring thunderstorms. Hopefully we'll have some, but not the, of that magnitude. But you know the clouds are moving so fast, and then all of a sudden it just seems like they start rolling aside. And have you ever been in one of those storms and seen that? I know most of you have. If you lived in this panhandle, would you just imagine uh, standing outside and seeing the heavens split from row and roll back like a scroll rolling back? You know what a scroll is? It's a rolled up document like papyrus or something like that. And you can just about imagine seeing something like that roll back. You know, we have, we have the hole in the ozone layer now, and that's just a minute thing. But I can imagine if the sky was rolled back, what kind of damage could we have even from that if that were to happen, you know, at that time? I, you know, we're talking about some, from some supernatural uh, uh, upheaval things in the, na in the, in the, in the uh, natural and nature's realm that will, will cause people to set up and take notice. This on earth could possibly have uh, have been, those on earth could possibly have a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. In other words, God may be showing them something right there that they don't want to see. You know, it says, uh, and we'll see this here in just a minute when we go to another line. I'll, I won't get, get into that right now. But, you know, if you look at those scriptures, Nahum uh, 1.5 and Revelation 20.11, I'll tell you, the, the one in Revelation 20.11 says this. Uh, it's, it's talking about uh, being at the great white throne judgment, and he says even the even the uh, even the uh, all the elements and the stars and everything fled from his presence. You know, so when you read that, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's we're going to see some things that are, and of course the great white throne judgment happens later on in the, in Revelation. We'll get to that eventually. 
But I'm just saying, when you, when the when the when the sky appears to split and roll back like a scroll, I can just I don't think any of us has ever ever witnessed a um, such a happening as that. Everyone on earth will be overwhelmed with dread and terror. Run run to hide in caves and dens. And we're probably talking about underground bunkers. You know, of course, uh, John when he was seeing this vision, he was he was seeing people run to to get the caves and dens but, or, or things like that. But, you know, I think about these underground bunkers. What about the recent news where Bill Gates, he built an underground bunker in, in Hawaii, you know? And I'm thinking about these kind of people, you know, the rich and elite, and, you know, the things, the people that they, they uh, that the uh, Scripture identified, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man. You know, it could be any man. It could be anyone from the poor man to the rich man seeking a hold to get out of the presence of God, you know? More than the physical catastrophes, they're terrified. They're terrified by their perception, or more likely their misperception of God. The martyrs under the altar cry out, avenge us, but these unbelievers cry, hide us. They don't want, they don't want to stand before a holy and righteous God because they know, what they're, they know what's going to happen. These people will know who they are dealing with, and yet they will still be rebellious and non-repentant. So I ask the question, is this the strong delusion smoke, spoken of in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11? You remember we talked about that? Well, just for your information, a delusion, uh, just it, it's, a, it's a Greek word, and it's, it's a, it's, uh, the Greek word for it is plane. It all, what it means is deviant behavior, a departure from what God says is true, an error or deception which re- results in wandering. In other words, that's how the, how the planets, that's where the word planet come from because these bodies were considered Roman bodies in the space or wandering bodies in space, so they called them after the word Greek word, plan A, which led into planet. But anyway, that's just a side note. So what is the wrath of the Lamb? Oh, no, wait a minute. One other paragraph. Here we see a great shaking of the earth, the greatest earthquake all mankind has ever known. Stars falling from heaven, probably a great meteor storm, possibly asteroids, violence in the sky. It will be a time of great catastrophe. God's great wrath being poured out on earth for the persecution of his people since the tribulation began, not only Jews, but also tribulation saints. So what is the wrath of, of the Lamb? The wrath of the Lamb, as we see in verse 16 above up there, it's a strange face, a phrase that sounds contradictory, but a closer look reveals it's, it's true. The wrath of God is the day of the Lord, talked about throughout the Old Testament prophets, a day of judgment coming on the earth, yet future. The Lamb is a familiar figure of Christ. We all know that. We've seen that before when we talked about the Lamb. Uh, a Lamb is gentle and meek. A lamb is harmless. You never see a, uh, never see a sign, beware of the lamb. Do you ever see a sign, beware of the lamb? You might see a sign, beware of the bear, but never a line, beware of the, the screeching lamb. You know, they're going, you don't see that. From the days of Abel to those of John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus is described as a lamb. The apostle Paul calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world in Revelation 13.8. We'll get to that soon enough. Even before a lamb was created, these things describe who Jesus is. In other words, God did not choose a lamb because it was like Christ or because it was animal people sacrifice. God created such a sacrifice to represent Christ. Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, before any lamb was ever created. The lamb sets forth his sacrifice. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb in Genesis 22.8. And God did provide himself a lamb. You all remember the story where he took Isaac up on Mount Moriah and he was going to slay him. And right before he brought the knife down on him, he, he said, hold up, hold on. And he said, look over here in the thicket, there was a lamb. And he, so 
Anyway, that was the lamb, uh, that, uh, that the ram or the lamb that God provided in place of Isaac. He was testing Isaac to see about his faithfulness, and sure enough, he, he, uh, he, he passed the test. But that's where we get the phrase, and that's where God was named at that time or given the name or the name was uh, presented to him at that time, Jehovah Jireh, I, he, the one who provides in that. You can go back and read that uh, whole account. Christ was all these things when he walked among us, gentle, meek, humble. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. His life was marked by winsomeness, attracting people to himself like the perfume of a lovely and fragile flower. His coming was a doxology, a praise to God for his providence. His stay was a blessing for all who believed. His departure was a benediction, sealing us in worship for eternity. Even the unbelievable, unbelieving world is fascinated by his life. I promise you could probably ask nearly anybody in the world if they know Jesus by name, you know, not by heart, but, I mean, you ask them, and they, everybody knows the name of Jesus by, by just by the nominal name of it, you know, like that. I mean, Jesus is not a hidden name for sure. When you talk about Jesus, people know who you're talking about. Um, but that doesn't mean that they accept him. <sighs> But what about the wrath? Wrath is a strange and, for, and wrath is strange and foreign when it describes God. God loves the good and hates the evil. His hate isn't like ours. He's not vindictive, but righteous and holy and just. He is strong and mighty in battle. The gospel message reveals God's judgment, His wrath against all unrighteousness. Romans 1:18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. All men, this is a statement, I just wrote this in on my notes. All men know that God exists. I don't care if you're an atheist or what you are. All, all men know that God exists, but it doesn't mean all accept him as Lord and Savior. In other words, people are just in denial. They want to deny it because it doesn't fit their agenda of, of their uh, lifestyle. To say the wrath of God is like mixing fire and water, but all the fury of God's wrath is revealed in the Lamb. God has declared war against sin. A day is coming when the wrath of God will be revealed. Listen to the psalmist where he says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. What about the people turning to God and getting saved during, the, during this period? We're talking about this period of tribulation. Since you can't turn to God without the work of the Holy Spirit, how does anybody get saved without the Holy Spirit on earth? Did the Holy Spirit leave the earth and take the church to present us to uh, take the church to present us to Jesus Christ? Uh, yeah, the answer to the question of that, yeah, he did. He, <laughs> the Holy Spirit did leave the earth, and, uh, but, he, but he's not left the earth completely. He left the earth in the raptured saints. So you can see that in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. It's a good question. The Holy Spirit is present. He's just changed roles. During our day, when the gospel is going out, the Spirit re restrains evil so the gospel can penetrate a Satan-controlled and Satan-blinded world. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan, right? So he's controlling things down here. He's got control in a lot of different areas. You know, God's always in control, but uh, he is the prince of the power of the air because man give it to him. So how could the world go out unless the Spirit of God holds back evil? Even today, satanic forces work against the Word of God being heard and believed. The Great Tribulation is devil's holiday. God will give him freedom, or I probably would, should say freedom of permission to do as he pleases, just as he did in the situation with Job. 
in that in that case. But anyway, this this is where the devil has a free hand. This part of God's judgment on a world that rejects Jesus as Savior. But a great company of people will be saved in the tribulation, more than any other seven-year period in the history of the world. The Holy Spirit is in the world after the church is removed, just as he was in the world before Pentecost. Just read the Old Testament, you'll find him working in people's hearts and lives. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God didn't restrain evil in the world, and he wasn't baptizing believers into the body of Christ like he's doing today. However, he will still be in the business of getting men and women to Christ. He has always been in the business of taking God's creation and renovating it. Uh, like the Spirit brooded over the face of the, on the face of the waters during creation, the Spirit broods over this earth today. He will have to have an unusual, special program during this period, and now John tells us what that will be. Between the sixth and seventh seal, we have a pause. And we're fixing to go into chapter 7 here in a little bit, but I want, I want to explain a little bit here. Through John's eyes, we, we've seen the riding of the four, four horsemen that gave us a bird's eye view of the tribulation, and now the details are going to be given to us, explaining how God would be merciful even in judgment. Revelation 7 answers the question asked at the end of chapter 6, who is able to stand? And, and what I said earlier, you know, when it says, who is able to stand? Well, for believers, you might ask that question now. Who is able to stand now? Well, read those scriptures right there, Romans 5, 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, and 1 Peter 5, 12. These, th this, is, this is where you get the, the idea of who is able to stand. It'll still apply for, during the tribulation period, but these people will be uh, going through uh, persecution that has never been seen before, and they will earn their stripes, if you, so to speak, not to earn their salvation, but I mean they will earn their reward ten times more than what we, what we probably have been through here on this earth as far as this generation living here. But before we go on to the beginning of chapter 7, Let's explain a little bit more about what is meant by a pause as stated in the last paragraph. This is, a criti this is critical in understanding as we move forward. Uh, chapter 7 presents the first of several or what are called pauses or interludes in the book of Revelation. A pause or interlude is like a break or an intermission. Or as, as one writer says, it's kind of like a diversion from the normal chronology of things happening. But anyway, it's, notice as we look at 7, there's not an immediate move. As we, as we look at chapter 7, we'll get into that here in just a minute, there's not an immediate move uh, to the 7th seal. We've, we've seen the 6th seal. Now, you'd think naturally if we're going chronologically, we should go right into the 7th seal. We won't see that until chapter 8. Chapter 7 doesn't have anything about the seal in there. But it's more. In, all that is happening over the course of the 6 seals could not be contained in just one chapter. So an interlude is a break in the action to provide us with more information and more detail. Some interludes are called, uh, so these interludes are called uh, a parenthetical by some commentators. Think of how you use a parenthesis to add something to the meaning of, of a, or definition of a word. I, and I think of the Amplified Bible, you know, when it's, when, it, many, when it's got several different descriptions of that particular word or phrase, you know, it's in parentheses, so it's giving you more detail and more information, helps you understand and so I just use that as a simple, uh, kind of a simple uh, example of what a parenthesis will do for you. Uh, the Amplified Bible might be a good example to use of these parentheses. Uh, a parenthesis could be, this is, this is a side note here, could also mean that while events are happening on earth, other things are being done in heaven. In other words, we've got things happening on earth, we've got things happening in heaven. John, remember, he's, he's in heaven, he's seeing all these things going on. And he's seeing these things in a, in a supernatural vision, 
within two different dimensions, the heavenly realm and he's seeing it in the earthly realm. So, I mean, you know, you see these things and you're going to see some of these things happen like that. It's going to be things happening in heaven, some things happening on earth, and hopefully we can pick those things out and have a little bit more, and I'll try to pick these up, uh, pick these out as we go. It's a passage, in a, a, a pause or an interlude or a parenthetical, it depends on how you want to call it. It's a passage inserted to give detail and explanatory information about things that will transpire, transpire from the sixth seal to chapter 19, the end of the tribulation period. We'll have several of these parenthetical passages until we reach chapter 19, and I'll try, like I said, I'll try to let you know up front if that section is considered a parenthetical, in other words, for more detail and more explanation. And all of chapter 7 is going to be a parenthetical, I believe. In Dake's annotated Bible, we know, he, he notes that there are nine parenthetical passages. Not everybody does. Some say seven, some say three. It just depends on who you, who you read and, and how many different commentaries you look at. But anyway... All of this will help us to understand, I believe, the flow and chronological order of the things a little better. So let's start in chapter 7, the first of these pauses or interludes that we will see. Revolution 7, uh, verses 1 through 3, we'll read those. And after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, and the, that, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from, from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So it says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners, controlling the wind. The fifth, then the fifth angel, apparently of a higher rank than the other four, gives them orders. The spiritual world of angels, both good and bad, are well organized in military ranks as we learn in the book of Daniel and also in Ephesians. The angel cried with a great voice, literally like a megaphone, getting the angels ready for the fearful judgment about to break on the earth. He says, hold everything back, hold back the winds of judgment, the winds of the great tribulation period, because we have these seal, have to seal these folks so they can make it through. Commentators say that what, what we're seeing here is these are the fourth, these are the four, first of the four angels that will blow the first four trumpets. That's what is assumed here. So when we say he's saying hold back the, the winds of judgment, it's like the calm before the great storm. Something has to happen during this calm before the storm and the, everything else before uh, God's wrath is about to break forth. For the sake of those who have been sealed, this terrible time will be shortened. Jesus said that in Matthew 24, 22. He says, unless those days were shortened, no, he's talking about all these supernatural things that are happening in nature and these, these trumpet uh, judgments, the judgments that we've already seen, the great earthquake, the trumpet judgments, the, the bold judgments and all these things. But he says, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now I want to give you a quick thing about elect. elect. I know Pastor Travis is going to have to preach about election one of these days so he can, square, he can get us squared away on that. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, election, you know, we, we see that word. And basically, I know I, it depends on which side of the fence you're on, whether you're on the Calvinist side or you're on the Arminian side. In other words, some believe that um, elect means determining for beforehand or ordaining or deciding ahead. It's kind of like voting for the president. We're, we're going to vote in the primary coming up soon, I think, in March, and then in November we'll vote for our president, right? We'll go cast a vote for the one we want, either 
uh, Trump or whoever's running on the other side. But anyway, that's my opinion. You got that for free. Anyway, it's it's like it's like a pre it, it's like we're talking about the argument is is it pre predetermination? I guess the two sides of the coin on this elect coin is predetermination, predestination, or personal responsibility. Now, Calvinists say that you have. I'm, I'm giving you a quick thumbnail capsule on this, so don't get confused and don't get lost in the weeds too much here. But I want to just say. Calvinists believe that there is a, a thing called irresistible grace. In other words, you cannot, uh, you, are, you are predestined, you are elected by God to be saved before the foundation of the world, and there's nothing you can do to stop that. It's going to happen, and you're going to be uh, destined to do that. In other words, they say free will has nothing to do with it if God preordained it. Now, on the other side of the coin, which what they call the Arminian side of the coin, which are Methodist and a lot of Charismatics and all, all on that side, they say that free free will does have something to do with it, and you have to make the choice. And so it's a big argument. It's called the doctrine of election, and it's and there's a whole lot of things in there. Calvinists do it one way, that, and you know, I'm, we're not going to get into that. But I I, I had to, I wanted to study this, and I've had this on my mind a lot of times in, in many many ways. But I remember a story one time of one of somebody telling uh, telling me that you know this come up, and and they were trying to say. How do you how do you know what's right or what what is what does the elect actually mean or what, what who are the elect and what does election mean what does predestination mean and this was actually after I studied a little bit longer I found out that it was actually used by a Baptist preacher called Herschel Hobb he's one of the he was he was a big uh, preacher back in the 60s and he used this phrase but I think it goes back even, even further and what I the story I heard was of a black preacher somebody asked him he said well who is the elect? How do you how do you explain the doctrine of the elect? And he he said it. And this I, I like this an analogy because I think it gives it a very uh, simple way of thinking about it. He says he said, well, this is my this is my interpretation of the elect or the election or the election of the saints. He said, God voted for you, Satan voted against you, and now it's up to you to make the deciding vote to break the tie. So I mean that that kind of gives you an idea. Now they will. There's arguments that will say, well, that's heresy. You can't do that because it, you're, you're talking about then that you're 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 circumventing God's sovereignty and being able to do that. But I found another place here that I thought was very good. After reading all those arguments on both sides, it ends with this right here, and I'll, I'll just read this to you. Both predestination and personal responsibility are true, right? God is coming because predestination is actually spoken of in the Bible, so we know it's the word of God. God is completely in control, and humanity makes choices and is completely accountable for those choices. The Bible does not present these as irreconcilable truths, as theological traditions sometimes do. We learn that if God elected those he foreknew, he both knows his creation before it exists, and he determines important things about his creation. If God is great enough to be the creator of all, then he is not stumped by the mutual existence of his sovereignty and human volition or choice and responsibility. I like that. I thought that was great. Now, another side note on that elect before, Charles Spurgeon, you've heard him spoken of many times by me and Pastor Travis and a lot of people that talk about it. He was the great English uh, Baptist preacher in the, in the 19th century. And he was saved in a Methodist church, actually. And he, and he was, but he was a very passionate Calvinist. And he said this. I mean, they said this of him. He frequently prayed this prayer at his church. This is talking about election. 
in the elect. And he said he frequently prayed this prayer at his church, evening prayer, you know, when he was out on the, on the road and, and in, in the meetings right before that. But he would pray this prayer. God, call out your elect and then elect some more. So that's like both covering both sides of the coin, you know. So, I mean, I like that. I love that about that. So, anyway, that's, that's my little rendition and uh, rabbit trail on the elect. Probably more than you'll ever need to know, maybe. There will be two great companies of redeemed during this time, uh, during this time, Revelation 7, uh, 1 through 17. The sealed out of the nation Israel, and the 144,000, and the other, the tribulation saints, mostly out of the Gentiles, the nations. Dake, in his book, God's Plan for Man, says, he, says the seal is the name of the Father written on the foreheads. We don't know for sure what the sign, uh, what sign the, use, the Lord uses on the forehead of his people to seal them, but it's some spiritual mark on their lives in contrast to the mark of the beast so they can make it through the tribulation. Here's what it says in Revelation 14.1, and we'll cover that in later. But in the, it, what, what, I, what most people that say, the better translation is not the King James Version or the... Or the the New King James Version, but the American Standard Version is one of the versions that actually catches it better as far as the good, the better translation. And this most will agree with this. And they said, in, uh, this is how it's translated in the uh, American Standard Version. And I saw the same verse, 14.1, but it's, and I saw, and behold, the Lamb standing on the Mount, on Mount, on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, and we'll get to that later. But anyway, this is what it says, having his name, meaning the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father written on their forehead. So basically what it's saying is the, the mark will be the name of the Lamb, Jesus, and the name of the Father on the forehead. Okay? We'll move on to Revelation uh, chapter 7, verse 4. Oh, I don't know why I put that on there like that. But anyway, it's the rest of Revelation, I think, through 17. Yeah, it's the rest of it. I'm glad they caught that. Jennifer caught it. Probably confused her too. But anyway, she got it. But anyway, I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of, is, of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribes of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, uh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, uh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And then going to chapter, uh, verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said, to him, I said to him, John speaking, he said, I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before the Lamb, the throne of God, and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger, 
anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is the midst, in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You'd think that passage would be something you'd see at the end of the book, but it's not. It's here, and I think what he's doing is he's giving him a preview of what actually is going through, and we're, we're seeing the, the things here. But the 144,000 and more, and how many, how many of you know who the 144,000 are? I mean, we read that just now. So what are we saying? Who are the 144,000? What does the Bible say they are? They're Jews from the 12 tribes, 12,000 each, right? But you know how religion is. And, and there's cults and other beliefs that say, well, no, the 144,000, this is our interpretation of the 144,000. Of course, you all know the Jehovah Witnesses have a whole different uh, uh, interpretation of this. To the Jehovah Witnesses, they say the 144,000 are those, we, and we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about the cults a while back, but uh, they are those who, along with Christ Jesus, are born again, quote, unquote, uh, to exist as spirits. And they will reign with Christ in heaven. In other words, they're saying that there's only going to be 144,000 in the Jehovah Witnesses that actually make it to reign uh, with Jesus, and they're only going to be spirits. The rest of the, uh, all the rest, the rest will live in a paradise earth with resurrected bodies. To them, there is no hell in their traditional understanding of the doctrine and that, this, that, and the other. Now, that's just one phase of the, what they think. Uh, and, and they, they say that they're only the overcomers. In other words, those 144,000 are the real overcomers in the Jehovah Witness. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists, sometimes they have been known. Now, this is, they're, they're, there's been a little bit of uh, back and forth on this one, but they have been known to apply uh, this number to the faithful ones found observing the Jewish Sabbath when Jesus comes. In other words, you know, Seventh-day Adventists, they worship on Saturday, and they say if you're not, if you don't believe that, if you don't keep the Sabbath, then you're really not going to heaven, uh, because the Sabbath is what it says. It's the Jewish Sabbath, which is on uh, Saturday. But anyway, that's just a couple of different uh, takes on that right there. But you know, like one interpreter says, and in a, a big rule of thumb in, in interpreting, uh, especially the, the Book of Revelation, because there's so much symbolism and there's so much things like that. Uh, like one. Uh, rule of thumb that you use on there is where it says let the plain sense of the of scripture make common sense in other words when it actually says that these 12 tribes of israel represented by 12,000 people i think that's good enough and clear enough to not have to symbolize it or to make it symbolic to anything else and call it anything else but what it says these are uh jews these are these are jews plain and simple so from the day God called Abraham back in Genesis, there has always been a remnant of people who are true to God. Uh, pastor preached on this a while back, in First Kings nineteen through nine through eighteen, and that's the that's the story or the account where uh, Elijah was being pursued, and he went to the cave, you know, and and uh, you'll have to go back and read the whole message. But basically, Elijah thought he was the only prophet left in the whole uh, kingdom. And uh, or the whole area, and he says, and he said that this is what he says in, in 14 of that verse. He says, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life when he's talking about everybody that's trying to kill him. But then God responds to him back in, in verse 18. He says, 
Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So in other words, God's always got a remnant. He's always got his, his plan is always secure. In the Great Tribulation, God will have a remnant of Israel who, be, who will be saved and who will witness who will witness of Christ. Though just a small number, God tells us 144,000 Jews will be sealed. And, and if you study more and find out these are going to be Jews that are, these are men that have not slept with women, so they're virgins, and they're going to be selected, and so they're going to be men, uh, virgin men. They will be sealed and saved, literally, that many. It's not a symbol or another number, 144,000, and thus protected. And they're going to be protected from the trumpet judgments yet to come. They're going to be supernaturally protected with the seal uh, that's upon their forehead, and they're going to be supernaturally protected during this time when they're ministering on earth. See, when God deals with Israel, he always deals with the dates and, with dates and numbers. He doesn't talk about uh, either dates or numbers with the church. Paul never turned in a report to anybody as to how many were saved. Even, the, in, even when, he, when we get to the company, the great company of Gentiles who are saved in the Great Tribulation uh, period, we're not told the number. These people will be the only ones who can say, and then the end will come. Uh, Jesus said that in Matthew 24, 14. He said, after, this, after these things, then the end will come. That's all, after all these things happen. This group will be the last, like I said, you need to go back and read Matthew 24. You're going to miss out. You've got to read it in context and see. As we've talked about all these things, you'll see these things falling into place in that passage of Scripture in Matthew 24. This group is the last who will be saved, and then it won't be long until Jesus Christ will be back. Now, when I said that, when I say that the last will be saved, this group, along with the tribulation saints that are going to be saved as a result of this ministry, we can't say Christ will be returning soon, in other words, the second advent, not the rapture, because we don't know the day or the hour when it will come. We don't. We don't even know when the rapture is going to occur, but we, we believe it's close. So how will these people be saved? They will be saved just as we are today, by accepting the death of Christ as payment for their sins, of their sins, the gospel message of grace. God has always had one way to save people, by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 through 4, read that. It's a very good description. It's kind of a thumbnail sketch of, of salvation. Paul writes it out very succinctly, and it's very good. But read that. It's very, if you see it, you know, if you ever have to witness to somebody, read that to them. This is what it says about Jesus. But in this period of the tribulation, the Holy Spirit will seal them with a special mark, guaranteeing, talking about the 144,000, guaranteeing they will make it through. If it weren't for this mark of protection, they wouldn't make it. They wouldn't make it. None of us would make it through life without the Holy Spirit. We're weak and would deny him before the sun went down if it wasn't for this, his work in us, and, that, and he resides in us, of course. Um, and and the, the, Matthew 24, 14, if you want to just read it right quick, I wrote it down here, it, it, and it said, the gospel, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. In other words, as we'll see here soon, the 144,000, these are the people, that, and God's got such a great plan. It's not only the 144,000. He's got angels. He's got the two witnesses. You know, there's going to be so much going on that, uh, that you know, there's, there's going to be people that are going to be able to hear the gospel message even during that time. So the company of 144,000 doesn't exist today nor does it refer to the church. In other words, they're not the sealed 144,000. They may be living on earth today, but they're not marked out or called out. They will be saved of all the tribes of the children of Israel, as it says in verse 4. 12,000 will be sealed, 
uh, out, of the, yeah, out of each tribe. God has long promised Israel throughout the Old Testament that he would come and establish his kingdom. <clears throat> it, will be a first, it will be first a thousand-year kingdom, the millennium, a time of testing, and then right into eternity. God promised them that they would be a nation forever and they will be in the land of Israel forever. Some say God is, is through with Israel, but that's not true, and we've said that over and over in all of our teachings. You'd have to contradict the whole tenor and tone of the Old Testament with Israel, uh, the Old Testament, to believe that. Uh, Revelation is like a great union station or an airport where trains or planes come in from everywhere. All the major themes of prophecy come in to Revelation. Therefore, you would certainly expect Israel to be here in Revelation, and lo and behold, they, there they are. So we are given here 12 tribes of Israel. Let's review them. Before I do that, though, I want to talk about it. We're talking about the 144,000, just to give you a perspective here. Well, maybe, I, maybe I'll do that. No, let's do it now. Think of the 144,000. You think that's not a big number? I mean, it's just it's less than the people of Amarillo total. But think of 144,000. These are going to be super witnesses. These are going to be supernaturally empowered witnesses that are going to be uh, that are basically going to evangelize the world. So you think about um, how many people, uh, how many how many missionaries do you think there are in the world right now, in the entire world? That from the different church groups, there's probably 25 to 30,000 missionaries that are commissioned at at any given time right now. 25 to 30,000. And so, and so, uh, and then if you think how many, so you you think where are these, where are they going to come from? The Jews, these hundred forty-four thousand. Well, uh, right now in Israel, if you go and look at look it up, I, I I just got a rough estimate of how many Messianic Jews there are living in Israel at this time, and there's a rough estimate anywhere from ten to fifty thousand of the Jews in Israel of the, of the four to five million that live there. Only about that many are are considered Christians or Messianic Jews. So. Uh, you think about that 144,000 when compared to 25 to 30,000, that's five times more missionaries that are sent out into the world now. And the, think about the population of Earth at that point. We have 8 billion people. I wrote that down somewhere. Yeah, in 2023, it was estimated 8 billion people. Uh, and say 20, I'm just going to be real generous and say 25% are raptured. So that leaves. Six billion people yet to minister, and then those people that are not killed by all the disasters that are going on, how many people are going to be left? It's going to be the greatest revival ever, or the greatest evangelistic. We'll see that here in just a minute. But I just that's just some perspective to think about. Where do these 144,000 uh, come from? So notice Judah. So on the 12, 12 tribes we looked at right there, it says, notice Judah leads or heads the list. The tribe of Reuben. Now remember Reuben. He was... Reuben, he's the firstborn of Jacob. Uh, the tribe of Reuben sh should come first, for Reuben was the oldest. But because of his very gross immorality, he lost the first place, but he is still included. Now, what did Reuben do? Reuben slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And so he violated his, his uh, right to have the first, firstborn birthright, which would have been, he would have been the firstborn, of the, so he would have received the birthright. So he was replaced by Judah, as far as that goes, and of course we know uh, what happens with Judah. That's where the lion of the tribe of Judah comes from, and that's where he gained prominence. Oh, so, and another thing about uh, Reuben is is um, Reuben. There was many stories about Reuben in the Old Testament, but 
if you you will not see anything about Reuben in the New Testament, no, not mentioned anywhere. In other words, he fell out of favor very far because he committed this gross uh, sin by sleeping with his father's uh, concubine or wife at that time. And so he, what he was doing is he was defying his father's authority at that time. And so he, he got kicked out of first place. So the question, and of course that question often arises when a Christian sins, does he, you know, but he, 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 he lost first place, but he was still included. And so what it, that Back then, that sin would have been a sin worthy of stoning, so he should have been stoned at the time, and he should have died. So the question often arises, when a Christian sins, does he lose his salvation? No. A true, true, I'm talking about a true question, Christian. No, but he may lose his reward. Reuben is a good example of how God deals with us. Reuben lost his, his place of honor, but he did not lose out altogether. He is number two, but he should have been number one. Judah was the tribe given the preeminence, and we can see that. If we go back and read in Genesis 49, I encourage you to go read it. If you hadn't, matter of fact, you might have already read it in our daily readings because we're coming up. I've already passed it, so you probably already read it. But anyway, it's Jacob's last words to his sons, and he gives them a prophetic word, and he calls Judah. You can see what he says about Judah. You can always also see what he says about Reuben. Go back and read that because it's an interesting read. So the preeminence was the tribe from which the Lord Jesus come from. We're talking about Judah, of course. So uh, so we also find that the tribes of Dan and Ephraim are omitted from this list. They were the original part of the original tribes, but they're in, omitted from this list. Now, speculators have said that it was both because both of these tribes were guilty of leading the nation into idolatry. Dan was the first tribe that fell into idolatry. There's the scriptures. You can see those and go back and read them. That, that Dan is given top priority in the millennium reveals God's grace can reach down and meet the needs of any sinner and you can see in Ezekiel 48 that's the that's where they do the millennial Ezekiel's writing about the millennial uh, uh, land division as it comes into as 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 we go into the millennial kingdom but anyway the tribe of Dan is in the millennium but they are not sealed for the purpose of witnessing during the time of the great tribulation they lost out on a great opportunity some commentators such as Dake and and Swaggart they make the statement that probably Dan was excluded because they were not serving the Lord at the time of the sealing. In other words, when, when the time happened right there. And, you know, it's interesting that Perry Stone, in his commentary about this, he says that he's been to Israel several times, and he said the place that's considered the area where the, where the tribe of Dan would be in Israel, he said they are the most secular and sinful Jews of all of them right there where they're at. So that's just interesting to think about right there, that they maybe, maybe at the time when the sealing takes place, they're not serving uh, like they should be, or at least a remnant of them are not serving. So Ephraim was also guilty of idolatry. Uh, Hosea 4:17 says, Ephraim is not joined to idols, let, let him alone. Ephraim is also the tribe which led in the division of the kingdom. So, you know, when we think, see that, what I say, that's speculation because we don't know for sure because which of the tribes, which of the 12 tribes did not fall into idolatry? If you read through the through the kings and chronicles and and you read through all the times when they were they were ex exiled Daniel and all of them all of the tribes at one time or another fell um, all of them have that's why they were they were carried off into captivity and exile and that's why after uh, after AD 70 they were dispersed and many times they were dispersed all over the earth so in the list of the 144,000 who will be sealed Joseph takes the place of Ephraim and Levi takes Dan's place. Levi, the priestly tribe, will be part of the witnesses in the Great Tribulation. 
God now turns against again to the nation of Israel. He has not given them up. He said through Hosea, uh, how long or how can I give you up, Ephraim, uh, in, in Hosea 11.8, meaning I can't do it. God doesn't give Israel up. They will make it through the great tribulation period, a great display of God's grace and mercy. The Holy Spirit will seal these 144,000 before because they will be God's witnesses during this period, and it will cost him a great deal, them a great deal. If they weren't sealed, they wouldn't make it through, but God never leaves himself without a witness on this earth. So if we look at uh, verses 9 through 12, once again, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude. It says, Notice it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, of which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God sits on, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around in the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. So we witness now through John's eyes a fabulous, fantastic worship scene in heaven, a great multitude gathered that no one could number from every nation and out of tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This great company has come out of the great tribulation period and are rejoicing in their salvation. These are Gentiles mostly, people from every tribe and nation under the sun. This means that in the great tribulation, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world. The 144,000 witnesses in the great tribulation period will do in seven years what the church up to the present has not done in over 2,000 years. The greatest day of God's salvation are in the future. Most of this company were martyred during the great tribulation period, but they were faithful in the end. Their white robes speak of the righteousness of God or righteousness of Christ in which they are clothed in the shed blood of Christ. And since our righteousness is as filthy rags, we can read that in Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We've seen that before. The only reason we are able to stand before God is because Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He died that we might live, and that is true of the group, this group here also. They, were, they waved palm branches as the sign of victory, victory in Christ. This multitude is part of the great triumphal entry that will occur when Christ returns to the earth not unlike the Feast of Tabernacles per uh, Perry Stone's interpretation. You know where it says right there they're going to be waving palm branches and the Feast of Tabernacles. <clears throat> I don't know if you all remember the study about the feast, but the Feast of Tabernacles, are, you know, there's three main feasts that the, that the Jewish men were required to go to, the Feast of, of uh, Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But the Feast of Tabernacles where is the one where even Gentiles could go to it and celebrate with the Jews. So it's very unusual that you see that. And I think what we're going to see, and I wish I could go into more detail, but I know we're already up way past time. Sorry about that. One last page. Uh, we'll get into that maybe in more detail. The true triumphal entry was really not taking place yet. The scene in the Gospels, John 12 and Matthew 21, called the triumphal entry was actually more like a triumphal exit when Jesus rode in, in, into Jerusalem on a donkey, for he was getting ready to leave the earth. He was on the way to the cross at that time. Since then, there has been a great company who have come to him, and in the great tribulation there will be another great company. When he returns to the earth, the great company who were martyred for him in the great tribulation will be there. There is a wonderful, glorious picture of a worship scene yet to come, a fabulous, fantastic scene of universal worship of God by his creatures. The church is here. The Old Testament saints are here. The tribulation saints are here. The angels join in. One of the 24 elders now comes over to John with a question. Who are the believers dressed in white robes? And John says, I have no idea, but you must know. And the elder said, 
They come from the great tribulation. They wash their robes, scrub them clean in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're standing before God's throne. If the people in white robes gathered here were Old Testament saints or Israelites, John wouldn't have known it. He would have known it. But he doesn't recognize them at all. If they were the church, John would have known it uh, too. John, who's a representative of the church now in heaven, knows this company is not the church, but altogether different company. Doesn't this prove the church isn't going through the great tribulation? This is the great company out of all Gentile tribes and tongues and nations who have come out of the great tribulation, the greatest evangelism results of all history. And verse 15 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger, thirst no more, hunger anymore or thirst no more anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living foundations of fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just imagine what the comfort and joy there will be in this scene. The company of believers has been through the great tribulation. Most of them laid down their lives for Christ. Now God provides for them what they suffered without. They're not going to hunger or thirst. They apparently did. They will be sheltered from the burning heat of the sun. They have been thirsty thirsty physically and for spiritual things they didn't have, and they wept. But now God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They made it through the great tribulation because of the blood of the Lamb. This is a wonderful, comforting scene we get, to, we get a glimpse of here. It's a good reminder that the Lord Jesus has other sheep. He told his disciples this, but they couldn't understand it at the time. He could say the same thing to the church today. I have other sheep that you don't know anything about. The great company of Gentiles are some of the other sheep who will be redeemed, but who aren't part of the raptured church. There are plenty of seats at the Lord's table. Aren't you glad that we serve a forever merciful and gracious Lord and Savior? Aren't you glad that God has mercy plans and grace plans even during the time of tribulation? That's why it's our job. As we see these things and we read these things, we should have it in our heart. Let's get people saved before that time because there's no guarantee that they're going to be saved during this time. Of, they're going to be the ones that are, are the tribulation saints. We hope they are if we, don't, if we can't reach them on this earth. But now we've got this time to reach them, and that's the time we should spend. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you've shown us. Father, we thank you for the truth that you've shown us. And I pray, Father, as, as always, we always pray, help us to be diligent to take these things that we know now, the word that you've given to us and the, and the, and the precious gift that you've given us through, through grace and mercy, the salvation that we have, and let us share it with every living soul that we can come in contact with and to be diligent about it because we know that time of tribulation will be terrible and, and uh, horrific to everyone that has to go through it, and they might not make it. So, Father, it's our job to, to uh, speak the gospel and, to, and speak life into every life that we can. Help us to be diligent to do that. Forgive us where we fall short. Strengthen us that we might do and be about the purpose and call of God on our lives and, and with every person we come in contact with. We thank you for that. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms, to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app and to choose Arena of Life as your church. 
and a special thanks to those who make a difference by giving generously. You help us change lives and produce weekly content like this that reaches the world. If you're interested in partnering with us, you can give by clicking the link in our bio through the website arenaoflifechurch.org or through the Church Center app. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.